welcome to Flash Forward. I'm Rose and I'm your host. Flash Forward is a podcast about the future. Every episode we take on a specific possible or not so possible future scenario. This is episode number two in our five part series all about the future of the earth. We always start the show with a little field trip to the future to check out what's going on. And then we teleport back to today to talk to real experts about how that future might or might not unfold. Got it? Great. Today, we are starting in the year 2023. Oh, and if you listen all the way to the end of today's episode, I have a very funny musical surprise for you. Okay, let's go to the future. Everybody thinks they're on the verge of the next million dollar idea. But do they have what it takes to really make it big? It's time to find out. Real entrepreneurs, real investors, real success. But don't expect anything warm and fuzzy. Welcome to the snow globe. Let's meet the bears. Lenny Haywood is a renegade entrepreneur and billionaire who not only owns the Seattle Supersonics, he also plays for them. Everybody wants to be an entrepreneur, but not everybody has what it takes. You have to be ruthless, ready to rise and grind every day. John Jacob Siwa is a fashion icon turned fashion mogul who doesn't just walk the runway, he owns it, literally. If you don't look the part, no one will want to give you time or money, myself included. Show up looking right or I'm out. Farah Mustarian is the daughter of Iranian immigrants who went on to become a technology mogul like the world has never seen, selling her first startup for $4 billion at the age of 15 and never slowing down. If anybody knows what the American dream is, it's me. I made it happen for my family, and I can make it happen for yours. And Juana Aguilar, a venture capitalist who has taken hundreds of businesses under her wing to form the world's largest and most profitable corporation conglomerate worth nearly $1 trillion. I'm not here to make friends. I'm here to make money. Bears will hear from the world's best, brightest, and savviest inventors. For some, it'll be heartbreaking. It's not paranoia, it's science. Are you kidding me? She's trying to rip you off. Can you give me a second to think, please? Oh my God, we're all gonna die. For others, it'll turn into the opportunity of a lifetime. These are nice. This is the future of building, ladies and gentlemen. Who wants to dive in? The water's empty. We're gonna make some money before society collapses, girls. Let's step into the globe. Hello, my name is Roberta Peary, and I'm an astrophysicist. And I'm Ramona Bird, and I'm a luxury watch designer. And together, we created Sumeru. Sumeru is a state-of-the-art device that can give you localized information about the direction and strength of the geomagnetic field in your location. In non-scientists speak, this is a beautiful object that can keep you and your family safe by telling you where the Earth's magnetic field is stronger or weaker. All our current data suggests we are in the midst of a polar shift in which the north and south poles of our planet change places. You, of course, have noticed the effects of this shift. This filming location was selected based on the strength of the nearby electromagnetic field. And the bunker we're in right now provides protection from the radiation that could harm not just the cameras, but our bodies. But not everyone has access to a bunker. And to pick this filming location, the executives at Snow Globe probably had to work with scientists and satellites to figure out where the safest place was. That's where Sumeru comes in. 
I've developed a completely new method of detecting the Earth's geomagnetic field without expensive equipment like satellites. And I've created a sleek and beautiful design to hold Roberta's beautiful technology. Sumeru bands come in a variety of styles to match your personality, whether it's ultra-modern, active, young, or hip. Can we see those a little closer? Yes, of course. Uh, feel free to take one. These are nice. I really like the weight on this. Thanks. Yeah, I have about 15 years of experience designing name brand watches, so... Does this tighten anymore? I have small wrists. Yeah, let me uh, show you. Uh, oh, oh, okay. I see, I see. Great. Oh, it's cute. Do you have a patent on this technology? I do, yes. Great. Oh my god, Lenny, of course you pick the gold one. Look at him! Listen, I know what I like. So, you sell these online or at a department store or what? We do about half of our sales online, and we're currently in about 200 retail stores. Mostly high-end boutiques, some cute little shops. So how does this actually work? Like, how are you able to do this without satellites? Well, it's sort of technical. We're not idiots. Okay, so the Earth's magnetic field is largely determined by the activity in the crust, right? Sure. And in order to detect that activity, you need multiple observation points. That's why we largely rely on satellite data and huge computers running complicated neural networks to paint a localized picture. Okay. But... We also know that animals can detect localized magnetic fields somehow, and they don't have access to satellites or deep neural networks or any of that. What they use is something called radical pair reactions. This is the technical part. Radical pair reactions are initiated by absorption of light through a photopigment and subsequent electron transfer to a nearby acceptor molecule. After the electron transfer, donor and acceptor each have one unpaired electron, which possess a magnetic moment. Okay. Yeah, stop. I have no idea what you're talking about. Basically, what I've done is figured out how birds use chemical reactions to sense magnetic fields and replicated the process in this device. Okay, better. Better. That's good enough. So inside this watch is a chemical reaction. Yes, exactly. Does it ever run out? Uh, we don't know. We haven't ever had one stop working, and we've never been able to make the chemical reaction stop running in the lab. I mean, can you guess? Ten years? 20 years. I'm a scientist. I don't guess. But we have thought of that. And Roberta's working on a cartridge system so that people can just re-up the chemical reaction and not have to buy a whole new watch. I've been wearing this prototype for five years and it hasn't stopped working. Okay, five years. That's not bad. I'm having a little trouble figuring out how you'd actually use this, though. Can you walk me through it? Like, I have this watch on and I'm with my kids and I use it to figure out where the safest route to school is? Yeah, exactly. So let's say you're going to leave your house and you want to find the safest route to your school. Your Sumeru is going to guide you in the direction with the strongest magnetic fields. Make sure that you're the most protected. Okay, but this is just like an arrow. There's no map. So how do I tell it where I need to get eventually? You don't tell it exactly where you need to go, but you can see on the side there are these two little dials and you can set the width of how far you're willing to stray from a direct path and it will guide you within that. But what if it tells me the safest path is through a building? I mean, you could go around. I have an app that does this, though. It shows me a map with hotspots. Why would I wear a watch that might ask me to walk through buildings? How often does that app crash? Okay, you've got me there. It, it crashes a lot. Exactly. A weak magnetic field means a lot of radiation, which will wreak havoc in your cell phone's ability to communicate with any kind of network. And it's only going to get worse. I don't want something that's going to lead me through random alleys. I'm usually running late to take my kid to school. 
and a tiny more magnetic field doesn't seem worth it to wind up on some wild goose chase following this arrow thing. I'm out. What do you mean it's only going to get worse? <laughs> oh, Roberta can be a bit of a tinfoil hat person sometimes. As Earth's magnetic field weakens, radiation from space will most likely wipe out our entire power grid. If it gets really low, going outside could cause serious health problems since radiation mutates our cells and causes cancer. Right now, this watch can help you feel a little safer. But when things start to get worse, this watch could help you stay alive. Oh, boy. Okay, I think you're crazy. And for that reason, I'm out. If things get that bad, are people really going to spend, what, $45 on a watch? Can they even order online if the entire power grid is out? What are you asking for from us? We're looking for 300000 for 10% of the company. So what I'm seeing here is a company that's trying to capitalize on looming disaster, right? We know that the polls are reversing, but right now it's not that bad. You're trying to capture a market in this tiny sliver of time once it becomes clear that things are going to get worse. But before they get so bad, people can't order your product at all. No, I think this product is totally marketable right now. We hear from parents all the time who want to keep their kids and families as safe as they can. Right. But if you really want this to be something every person owns, like a watch, you can't just be selling it to the most paranoid moms. It's not paranoia. It's science. I have some ideas for you on how to market this at the exact right moment before everything goes to hell. Because unlike Lenny, I actually don't think you're crazy, Roberta. I think you're right. The question is whether or not you two know how to capitalize on panic or not. And I don't think you do, but I do. And I think I could make us a lot of money, but I'm going to need more than 10%. We could do 15%. Not worth it to me. How about this? $300,000 for 15%, and I want $10 on every unit sold. Because what I think is going to happen here is that you're going to sell well for a while. And then if we play our cards right, we sell really well for a year before everything collapses. And I use that money to build my protective bunker in the middle of the ocean. Can we take a minute to talk about it? or No, more than a minute. She's right about the sales plan. I told you that was what we should have pitched. Not the time. Should we take her deal? Counter with a $7 sale and then say yes to whatever she responds with. We'll take the deal for $7 a unit. Not 10. No deal. $10 or nothing. We accept. Excellent. We're going to make some money before society collapses, girls. Okay, so today's episode is about what happens when the Earth's magnetic fields reverse. But before we can get into how and why that might happen, we need to go over a little bit of high school planetary science. Why does the Earth have a magnetic field to begin with? The fundamental is that we have a planet that is rotating. It has a solid core. And around the solid core, there is molten material that is magnetic. This is Eftihia Zesta, a researcher at the Geospace Physics Laboratory at NASA. So the Earth has lots of layers, right? In the very middle, there's the inner core, and that's about two-thirds the size of the moon. This inner core is extremely hot, 5,700 degrees Fahrenheit, which is as hot as the surface of the sun. And because that inner core is under so much pressure, it's solid. Around this solid inner core is the outer core, which is also very hot, but under a little bit less pressure, so it's liquid. And crucially, both the inner and the outer core are made up of metals, like iron. When you get anything that is magnetic that keeps moving, it creates huge currents. And those currents are essentially 
like a dipole magnetic field. A dipole magnetic field just means that the field moves in a loop, always going from one end to another. So in Earth's case, you have a north pole and a south pole, and the current moves from one of those poles to the other. So because of you have this rotating liquid amount around the solid core, you have large magnetic fields. If you want to kind of break your brain for a second, which happened to me many times in working on this episode, here is a fun fact. When humans talk about the Earth, we all kind of consider the same North and South, right? The North Pole, where Santa lives, is in the Arctic, and the South Pole, where the penguins are, is Antarctica. But technically, in physics, when you have a dipole, the magnetic field always moves from North to South. But on Earth, if you look at the magnetic field lines, our field is flowing from what we call the South Pole to what we call the North Pole. So technically, today's north is actually south, in magnetism terms. Anyway, the key thing to know here is that the Earth has a magnetic field. And that is unlike the situation on the other planets, most of the other planets in the solar system and the moons. This is Michael Peruker, a researcher at the Planetary Magnetosphere Lab at NASA, and he has studied the magnetic fields of a bunch of the planets in the solar system. Mars, for example, used to have a magnetic field, but it doesn't anymore. And that probably died out uh, three and a half billion years ago, maybe, maybe even later. Uh, the same is true at the moon. The moon does not now have a magnetic field, a global magnetic field of its own. It has some remnant magnetic fields like Mars. I personally think that the most interesting magnetic field in the solar system belongs to Uranus. Uranus has this super weird magnetic field because it's tilted on its side. So basically, its magnetic field is at a 90-degree angle to the way that the planet rotates, which is weird. Anyway, the key thing here is that Earth is kind of special because Earth has a global magnetic field that is just right. It's not too weak. It's not too strong. It's not too small. It's not too big. It's the perfect magnetic field. Well, for us. I'm sure Uranus thinks that it has the perfect magnetic field for its purposes. But having a very particular kind of magnetic field is really crucial to the existence of life on Earth. And that's because the magnetic field is one of the things that protects us from all of the dangerous stuff out in space. People think about outer space as a sort of big empty thing, but it's not at all. It's incredibly dangerous. It's incredibly volatile. It's full of radiation. It's full of charged particles. It's full of bits of the electromagnetic field that are highly, highly damaging to life. And this magnetic field that surrounds our planet is one element of our protection from all of that. This is Alana Mitchell, the author of a book called The Spinning Magnet, all about the Earth's magnetic field. It's really sort of a cocoon around the planet. Of course, early scientists had no clue how important this cocoon was. They didn't know anything about radiation from space or charged particles or any of that. In fact, for a long time, scientists weren't even sure if the Earth's magnetic field was innate to the Earth and was constant or was something that just, like, showed up sometimes? People back in, you know, before 1600, certainly, thought that it was almost like a magical thing. It came and it went and you couldn't really count on it. And around, around 1600, when William Gilbert wrote his, you know, the first treatise on magnetism, he realized that it was a permanent function of the, of the planet. And so he started calling it the, the Earth's magnetic soul. 
It's hard to say exactly when humans figured out that the Earth had this magnetic soul. It was probably discovered independently in various parts of the world as people started experimenting with magnets and navigational tools. Over time, scientists around the world started gathering data and painting a picture of what this magnetic field looked like and publishing treatises on magnetism. And then something very strange happened. Okay, so this is, this is the beginning of the 20th century, so 1900 or so. There's this guy named Bernard Brun. He is living in almost the dead smack center of France in the volcanic heart of, of France. Brun gets this job as the head of an observatory, so he's mostly supposed to be taking weather condition data. But he became interested in magnetism because it was Earth, the Earth's magnetism, because that was a big hot topic at that time. And there was a whole bunch of research. Don't you just wish we lived at a time when the hot topics in science were things like the Earth's magnetic field and not how soon will climate change kill us all? Anyway, Brune decides that his contribution to this new hot topic lies in a very specific kind of rock. It's a, a layer, a seam of terracotta, so that's a sedimentary stone, that had been laid down millions of years before. And then at some time after that, there was a volcano that covered it, covered this seam of terracotta with hot lava. So Brune literally puts out a call to people being like, hey, my friends, I am looking for this rock. Can you help me find it? And this roadmaker gets in touch and he's like, my dude, I found your rocks. This thing that you're looking for, I found it. I just cut a road. It's down in a little place called Pont Farin, which was, a, you know, like a, basically a day's donkey ride or horse ride from where Bernard Brune lived at that time. And so Bernard Brune literally got on his steed and, you know, packed his chisels and went down to this little, this new road cut. So he rides down to this new road, collects his rocks and brings them back to the lab. And he needs this really particular, really rare type of rock for a reason. Brune suspected that the way that this rock was formed would tell him something about the Earth's magnetic field. And here's why. Remember that the rock has to start with terracotta. Terracotta happens to be an unusual type of, you know, rock. It has a lot of iron in it. And iron, as you know, has magnetic properties. So when terracotta is first formed, the iron molecules in the rock actually record the direction of the Earth's magnetic field. And there's only one thing that can really change that record. Extreme heat, which is where the lava comes in. So if lava flows over the terracotta and heats it up really hot, the iron molecules get excited again and they shake off that original compass reading. When the lava and terracotta cool again, these iron molecules reset to whatever the magnetic field was at the time of the lava flow. And these iron molecules within the terracotta were like a fossilized compass. And when he looked at this fossilized compass, Brune found something totally bizarre. The poles were on opposite sides of the planet. In other words, according to Brune's data, at some point in the Earth's history, the poles had switched. North was south and south was north. And when he published these findings, people freaked out. And he was ridiculed. I mean, he was just, it was, this was a scandal in scientific terms. I mean, nobody could figure this out. It was absolute anarchy in the scientific world. They didn't have a clue what was going on. 
Did Brune, when he went out there, he knew he was looking for this very specific rock. Did he expect to find a reversal or did he just expect to find something interesting? Oh, he didn't expect to find a reversal. He was gobsmacked to find this. There was nothing in any of the theory about the Earth's magnetic field that suggested that those poles were capable of switching places. He was just trying to get a few more data points for the history, the, the story of the Earth's magnetic field. He had no idea that he was about to change the whole narrative. Unfortunately, Brune didn't live to see that narrative change. He actually died just a couple years later, and it took 50 years before the idea of polar reversals became accepted. In fact, Brune has been largely forgotten in scientific history. But one of the former directors of the observatory that Brune used to work at is on this crusade to try and get him his proper credit. He took me to the road cut, which still exists. It's the same road cut. It hasn't been expanded. It hasn't. It's, it, there's no marker there. You have to. You really have to do some detective work even to get there. You know, we drove for, I'm going to say, an hour and a half or something along these little tiny roads. You know, is it here? Is it here? Is it here? You're trying to figure out exactly where this piece of terracotta was that changed the course of science, and it's still there. It's all overgrown. You know, you climb up on the bank, and there's all this moss and all these weeds and these little scraggly trees and all these empty wine bottles. You know that people have tossed off. And that is the site of one of the great discoveries in scientific history. Today, we know that the poles have moved around not just once, but a lot through the Earth's history. There's actually a whole field of research called archaeomagnetic dating, where scientists try and chronicle the timeline of the Earth's magnetic field. We have collected basalts from many places, including the high Canadian Arctic lavas that were erupted in uh, the Northwest Pacific Basin. We've collected lavas in India and Africa and Australia and a bunch of other places. This is Rory Cottrell, a researcher at the University of Rochester. Rory works on trying to better understand the geomagnetic history of the Earth. Scientists know that the last full polar reversal happened 780,000 years ago. But younger rocks and samples can also tell us about the oddities of the Earth's magnetic field, even when it's not switching places. And one of the oddities that scientists are really interested in right now is called the South Atlantic Anomaly. So visualize the Earth. Now visualize magnetic field lines coming out of the South Pole and wrapping around the Earth and going into the North Pole. Right, you got that picture in your head? In an ideal world, these lines are all just totally normal, moving along in a nice, even, bendy path from South to North. In reality, though, things are a lot weirder looking. What's happening around the area of the South Atlantic Anomaly is those field lines are going the wrong way. So you have a smaller magnitude. A smaller magnitude means a weaker magnetic field, which is what you find in the South Atlantic Anomaly, which spans for about 120 miles and covers a good chunk of the southern part of South America and out to the east into the ocean to South Africa. And that weaker field means less protection from radiation, which means that satellites and airplanes that travel in that region have to be careful. There are plenty of documented cases where satellites that move through the South Atlantic anomaly lose power or go offline or get damaged in some way. When the space shuttle flies through the anomaly, laptops on board sometimes crash. All the pilots the fly airplanes over South America, they're all very aware of the South Atlantic anomaly. They have to properly account for it when they fly over it. They have to properly account for radiation dosage. 
Right now, the South Atlantic anomaly is growing, but it's hard to tell if that's normal or not. We don't know if it grows sometimes and shrinks other times or what. So one of the things that Rory does is try and understand how this South Atlantic anomaly has changed over time. And to do that, Rory basically does what Brune did, look for rocks that record the state of the magnetic field in a place. But remember, these rock formations, they're rare. But it turns out there's another kind of sample that you can use to do this. Lava is not the only thing that can record the Earth's magnetic field. So can pottery. Okay, this is so cool. Basically, the firing process of pottery is kind of like the lava. It heats the clay up to a high enough temperature that the magnetite or iron in the clay actually resets and records the magnetic field at the time of firing. So if you look at pottery from archaeological sites, you can see what the magnetic field was like when that pottery was made. But it's not just pottery. We can also look at any material that has been fired or set on fire, as the case may be. There are a number of archaeological sites throughout southern Africa that have hosted villages that, for some reason, maybe a drought, maybe something has has killed the animals in the area, or something bad has happened, there would be a ritualistic cleansing of the village. Basically, they set everything on fire. And as a result, the hut floors, the grain bins, the cattle pens, everything that was part of this village is set ablaze. And this, these temperatures will be above that of the Curie temperature of magnetite. The Curie temperature is that temperature at which the magnetic record in a material will reset, basically. So having an archaeological context, usually based on pottery and the different ornamentations of pottery, as well as using carbon-14 dating, we know when this firing occurred reasonably well, and we have these fired objects that we can then sample to obtain information about the Earth's magnetic field. Rory has looked at samples from these archaeological sites that date all the way back to the Iron Age. And this is not just very, very cool, which it is. But it could also help people better identify a future geomagnetic reversal. In fact, some people think that the South Atlantic anomaly is the key to predicting the future of our magnetic field. Does the decreasing strength of the Earth's magnetic field mean the magnetic field is collapsing? Or could it be headed towards a reversal state? That's one of the things that we want to know. Because humans haven't been around and studying the Earth's magnetic field since the last reversal. And when we come back, we're going to talk about why some people think we might be living through the beginnings of a geomagnetic shift and what might happen if we really are about to enter into a period of polar reversal. But first, a quick word from our sponsors. Okay, so we've covered the history of the polls. Let's talk about the polls today. On February 4th of this year, researchers released the new World Magnetic Model, which is basically the globally agreed-upon model of what the magnetic field looks like. This is the model that everybody from the Department of Defense to NATO to pretty much every civilian navigation system uses to make their maps accurate. The last World Magnetic Model came out in 2015, and it was supposed to last until 2020. 
These models always come out every five years. But the North Pole had other plans. Right now, the North Pole of the Earth is moving away from Canada and towards Siberia way faster than anybody predicted. And that movement was really messing with the model. Early last year, researchers reported that the model was, quote, so inaccurate that it was about to exceed the acceptable limit for navigational errors, end quote. And in the South Atlantic anomaly, things are weird, too. The field is currently getting weaker. And some people point to that weakening field in places like Southern Africa as a sign that we might be entering into a reversal. But not everybody agrees. Rory's work has found that this has actually happened in the past. For example, between 1250 CE and 1000 CE, the strength of the magnetic field in that region was decreasing twice as fast as it is now. So we might not be seeing a polar flip, but rather just normal, random variation in the strength of the field. So all of this could be totally normal change, or it could be the beginning of a polar reversal. And there seems to be no real way for us to know which one it is. In fact, I asked everybody that I interviewed for this episode how we would know if we were experiencing the beginnings of this. And they all basically said... We wouldn't. There is no agreed-upon set of things, no checklist that indicates that, yes, in fact, this is happening. One of the reasons it's hard to know is that not all polar reversals seem to happen the same way. They don't always take the same amount of time or unfold in the exact same order. But we do know that during the reversal, the magnetic field gets really weird. This is the most fascinating thing of all. Within the core itself, in fact, there are all these magnetic factions that are that are there. I think of them as rivals, the, you know, the battle of the titans. So when everything is normal, these battles kind of average out into a dipole system, a north and south pole. But when you look closely, you see that there are always lots of little fields bubbling up here and there, fighting for dominance. And every now and again, they win. <laughs> and when they win, this dominant two-pole system, it, it's toppled. It's like Game of Thrones, but deep inside the Earth. And so instead of, on the surface, instead of having two poles, we will have four or six or eight poles as the dipole moves and has to change direction in order to reestablish its dominance over the Earth's magnetic field. And during all this fighting, where these other factions rise and take control of their little area of the field, the overall global magnetic field gets weaker. The shield that protects us from galactic radiation becomes only about a tenth of its usual strength. And then, eventually, as you reach the finale of this big war, the new winners emerge. The poles change places, the field reverses its direction, and everything snaps back into place and the dipole becomes dominant again. And these other little factions, you know, go back to, you know, having little skirmishes as opposed to having these great big, huge winnable wars. The good news here is that this war will be long. Very long. It's not like we're going to wake up one morning and north will be south and south will be north and chaos will reign. It's going to take a much longer time. It's going to take multiple generations or thousands of years. But let's say that we are on the cusp of a flip, which, again, we don't know if we are. And even if we were, none of us would live to see the results. Still, this is a show about speculation. So let's get to speculating. What happens next? Well, 
humans have never lived through a polar reversal. The last one happened 780,000 years ago, and Homo sapiens didn't really emerge until 350,000 years ago. But plenty of non-human animal species have survived these reversals, which got me wondering how this might impact all of the creatures that rely on the magnetic field of the Earth to navigate. First of all, in birds, it's not just migratory birds where this has been discovered. Certainly pigeons, even chickens seem to have a magnetic compass. And then there's fish, there are reptiles. This is Torsten Ritz, a biophysics researcher at UC Irvine. There's even a few mammals um, where this has been discovered. One of them is a blind mole rat that burrows, and they seem to build their nests always towards the south. Insects, certainly the monarch butterflies, there's you know, a whole range of, of different animals. One of the things that Torsten has spent years trying to figure out is how animals detect magnetic fields. Here is something I did not know until researching this episode. Scientists have had conclusive proof that animals can detect the magnetic field of the Earth and use it for navigation since the 1960s. But it's actually still kind of a mystery as to how they actually do this. There are a limited number of ideas of how this might work because it's actually, we have to understand, it's a very weak field. We think about the, the Earth's magnetic field as some giant field, but if you look at the strength of it, if you have a little fridge magnet that you put there to hang up some paper, the magnetic field of the Earth is about 10 times weaker when you measure it than what you would measure close to such a magnet. So it's a very weak field. Because the field is so weak, whatever it is that animals are using to detect it has to be really sensitive. Scientists think that some animals are actually using electric sensors. And there's some fish, the elasmo branch fish, which are sharks and other animals like that, that have very good electric sensors, and they may very well use this to detect magnetic fields as well. Researchers have identified these structures in fish. They actually have a really cool name. They're called ampullae of Lorenzini. And you can actually see these little pores on some animals, like tiger sharks. But there's a problem with this idea when it comes to birds or mammals. There's just no evidence that any structure like that exists in a land-based animal. So when it comes to land animals, there are two main theories. One is that animals have a small amount of magnetite in certain cells that act like little compass needles. And there's actually one type of organism that uses that, and these are these magnetic bacteria. These bacteria use their tiny magnets to tell up from down in their little ponds. So perhaps, the theory goes, birds or mammals have somehow incorporated these tiny bacteria into their bodies in some kind of symbiotic way to borrow their magnetic field detection abilities. But it has proven to be fairly difficult to actually find conclusively something that is a structure that, that is, you know, candidate structure. What Torsten works on is another possible explanation for this magnetic sensing ability, and it's an idea called the radical pair mechanism. And this is where we get into quantum physics. Woohoo! This is how the device you heard about in the little fictional intro works, by the way. All that science that Roberta was saying is, in fact, real. So, buckle up, we're going to talk about quantum physics. Let's start with electrons. If you go down to electrons, you can think of them like little compass needles. They have a magnetic moment because of a quantum mechanical property that's called spin. Here are the two things you need to know about electrons to understand how this works. First, 
electrons really prefer to exist in pairs. And second, each electron has a quantum property that's called spin, which is actually created by the magnetic field of the Earth. And when electrons are in their happy state, in pairs, they always spin in opposite directions. So it's like that couple who is attached at the hip at every party, but also seem like completely different people, and you have no idea how they are even dating. That's how the electrons are happy, um, and that's a steady state. But you can, if you put in a lot of energy, separate these electrons, and then you have two electrons that are unpaired. And those are called radicals, not because they're you know, radical in a political sense, but because they are at the root, which is the Latin word is radus, is for root, they're at the root of chemical reactions. So if you break this happy electron couple up, you get some weird effects. When an electron is waiting to repair, it's kind of in limbo. It's knocked out of its normal spin state. Remember, in any paired set of electrons, they really prefer to have opposite spins. So when you reshuffle, your lonely, mopey electrons need to make sure that they are spinning in the opposite direction from their new partner. Otherwise, this new relationship just isn't going to work. And here is where we get to the magnetic field. Remember that the magnetic field is what creates spin. So when those electrons partner back up and start spinning again, the magnetic field affects their new spin states. And that will give rise to essentially different chemistries. That different chemistry can, in theory, then be picked up by an animal's brain and interpreted as a signal that tells them something about the magnetic field of the Earth. And there's also some studies that show that there is a brain area that's linked to the eye that's active during magnetic orientation. And if you lesion that center, then um, the birds are not capable to use their magnetic compass anymore even though they can still orient to the sun compass and the star compass. But this is all still kind of a theory. There's no conclusive evidence that this is actually how animals like migratory birds are detecting magnetic fields. And since we don't know exactly how they sense the Earth's magnetic field, it makes it harder for us to say what might happen if the poles reversed. Researchers do know that most animals don't rely on just one signal when it comes to where they should go during a migration. You know, the magnetic compass doesn't prevent you flying into a building, so you need visual cues as well. But, and here is the very cool part, birds don't really think about magnetic directions the way we do. So when we talk about a compass, we're really mainly measuring the horizontal direction of the magnetic field. But Earth's magnetic field has a vertical component, too. So remember when you were picturing the Earth's magnetic field with lines all coming out of the South Pole and going around to the North Pole? Those lines are bendy, right? They kind of come out at a sharp angle, even out over the middle of the Earth, and then rejoin at a sharp angle at the North Pole, right? Our compasses only really measure the horizontal element of those lines. And if you reverse the magnetic field, obviously the, magnetic, the compass needle points in the opposite direction. But if you measure using vertical components, switching North and South doesn't change anything. And this seems to be how birds process magnetic fields. It seems to be that maybe birds have a genetic program that already doesn't so much distinguish north from south, but poleward versus equatorward. So essentially at the equator, the magnetic field lines are flat with the horizon, whereas at the poles, they're steeper. 
And so if you have a genetic program that tells you go to where the magnetic field gets steeper, you're flying towards the poles. And that works regardless of whether the magnetic field has flipped around or not. Which means that once the poles are fully flipped, birds and other animals that navigate using magnetic fields will probably be fine. And so it seems like maybe because the magnetic field is flipping on a fairly regular basis, that animals have evolved in a way to not only rely on the magnetic field, and that's already factored in to a certain extent. Isn't that so cool? Now, this isn't to say there won't be challenges for animals when they're trying to navigate, especially during that long stretch of time when the poles are fighting for dominance. But on the whole, the flip won't mean that entire species of birds wind up dying out because they can't figure out how to get home or how to find their breeding grounds. And this lines up with the fact that so far, there's zero evidence linking pole reversals with mass extinctions. In fact, the species that will likely have the hardest time with a pole reversal is us. Humans, I mean. Sorry to assume there are no animals or non-human entities listening to this. Very rude. Anyway, when we come back, we'll talk about why living during a polar reversal might actually be really chaotic for the human species. But first, a quick word from another one of our sponsors. So if you Google pole reversals, you get a lot of stuff that basically says that this would destroy humanity. It's actually a plot in a pretty bad Marvel comic called Ultimatum in which Magneto steals Thor's hammer and uses it along with his magnetic powers to reverse the Earth's poles, which leads to tsunamis and storms that completely destroy a bunch of cities. And if you've seen the very bad movie The Core, they actually do a little demonstration for what happens when the Earth's magnetic field dwindles. And I show this in one of my classes. The Earth's EM field shields us from the solar winds, which are a lethal blend of radioactive particles and microwaves. When that shield collapses, Microwave radiation will literally cook our planet. The demonstration that they did before Congress and the military was they stuck a fork in a peach and made that basically represent the Earth. This is the Earth without the EM field. And it basically used an aerosol can and lit it on fire and burned the peach to bits. Three months, gentlemen, and we're back in the Stone Age. A full year, the field collapses, and that. That is, in essence, a dramatic but cogent version of what could happen to the Earth's surface in the absence of a magnetic field. Feel free to throw up. I know I did. The Earth's magnetic field protects the atmosphere. And it's the atmosphere which is an important temperature regulator for the planet. Without a magnetic field, we would have an average surface temperature of about minus 18 degrees Celsius. That's kind of cold. As an example, Mars no longer has a magnetic field, and its surface temperature is quite cold. So without a magnetic field in place, solar radiation can strip away the atmosphere. You strip away the atmosphere, and you take away one reservoir of water, and you allow the surface reservoir of water to also go away. So without a magnetic field, basically, we have no water, to put it real simple. Here's a fun little callback. Remember that episode we did about what it would take to destroy all life on the planet? If not, it's an episode called Afterlife, and you can check it out after this one. 
But basically, we talked to two scientists who tried to figure out what it would take to completely wipe the Earth clean of all life. And they decided that to do it, you would have to boil the oceans. And their conclusion was that it would be really, really hard and unlikely for the Earth to be hit with enough energy for that to happen. But they did not consider the possibility that Earth might not need to be hit with any energy at all. If we lose our magnetic field, we will lose our oceans too. Okay, losing our magnetic field is unlikely. Uh, So even if it doesn't get that weak, depending on what those warring magnetic field factions wind up looking like during the reversal, some parts of the planet could still get kind of dicey. When I talk to people who are worried about galactic radiation and who track galactic radiation and what will happen to the planet when there's a smaller magnetic shield around our planet, they tend to be a little bit more worried. They tend to think that, you know, there will be more access to life. There will be more radioactive access to the surface. The more access that this radiation has to us, the worse it will be. I mean, one of the scientists I talked to said that he thought this parts of the Earth would become uninhabitable, and he couldn't predict which ones. Scientists also know that the ozone layer will likely be impacted by a weakened magnetic field. But despite the very factual journalistic outlets like Marvel Comics and The Core claiming that this future is possible, I will say that most experts are not actively worried about pole reversals wiping out all of humanity. In fact, when I asked Michael and Eftihi about it, they laughed at me. You telling me that people are actually afraid of this and they're bringing doom and gloom is the first that I knew of it. Yeah, it's not something that we... we, uh, (laughs) I didn't even conceive it. (laughs) In my defense, there are lots of people who have written about the potential for a polar reversal to do real damage to things like infrastructure, including the U.S. military, who published a report called Cataclysmic polarity shift. Is U.S. national security prepared for the next geomagnetic pole reversal? The report concludes that, quote, the nation is not prepared for both geomagnetic polarity reversals and adverse space weather. Here is why some people are actually a little bit worried. We know that a weaker magnetic field means less protection from space weather, and we know that space weather can impact power grids. The most famous and extreme example of this is what's called the Carrington event, which happened in 1859. During a big solar storm, the Earth was blasted with a ray of plasma from the sun, which caused blackouts, took down telegraph lines, and caused what telegraph operators described as streams of fire to pour from the circuits. The the only technology we had was was telegraphs and the telegraph system became this great conductor for electromagnetic energy and so uh, parts of it burst into flame parts of it that were just simply scorched it was the first globalized electronic technology and it was it was pooched you know just flat out pooched today our electrical infrastructure is far more developed In 2012, the Earth had a near miss on a similar solar storm, and experts who analyzed that event said that if it had actually hit Earth, the results would have been catastrophic. We would have been thrust back into Victorian ages. It would have been, and it would have lasted for decades, this damage to the the electric grid system. Obviously, this kind of solar storm is dangerous even when the poles are not reversing. But remember, this polar reversal can take thousands of years. And if a similar solar weather event were to hit the Earth while the magnetic field was weakened during a polar reversal, the impact would be even worse. 
what happens when the, sh when the Earth's magnetic field is only 10% of its usual strength and you have a solar storm or you have another, you know, like another attack of galactic radiation. Then there are the people who worry about satellites and what a wonky magnetic field might do to them. Remember how the South Atlantic anomaly already messes up satellites and systems in space? Well, that would only be more true in a world of a geomagnetic reversal. And today's systems on the ground that you and I use all the time rely more and more on satellites for things like GPS and communications. Of course, these are hypotheticals. We don't know when the next reversal will happen, and Eftihia says that one reason she doesn't worry is that this will happen slowly. And she thinks humans will have time to adapt the grid and update technology as needed. I don't think it will have any impact. We will just slowly learn. In fact, Eftihia thinks that in this future, where we've slowly updated the electrical grid to be protected from whatever the impact that our weaker magnetic field might have, we'll also be better protected against Carrington-like events. You know, Katrina's happen, and the Carrington event could happen again. But in a society 2,000 years ahead or 3,000 or 10,000 years where the magnetic field is in the process of reversing, they will respectively, if they are a space-faring society, they will prepare for that condition and they will build their satellites for those conditions. Do you see what I'm trying to say? Yeah, I think you have more faith in the updates to the electrical grid than the military does, is what I'm saying. <laughs> like, they're worried that we aren't going to update because our electrical grid is already outdated and isn't protected in many ways, right? Like, I think that's the thing that people are worried about. So as much as I love end-of-the-world scenarios, I will say that if you are going to stay up late at night worrying about something, this probably is not the thing to pick. Even if we are at the dawn of a new geomagnetic reversal, we'll all probably die without even knowing it. The switch will take thousands of years, and the impact on each individual human generation will likely be small. But you don't have to take my word for it. Nobody I talked to for this episode really, truly worries about this. I mean, it's not one of these things that keeps me up at night, if you know what I mean. I mean, it's probably a long time in the future, and it's unclear exactly, you know, what will happen. No. I, re I worry about a lot of other things. I, I worry about a lot of other things, but that particular thing does not keep me up at night, no. My cats keep me up at night, not, not the magnetic field. Will it reverse in our lifetime? Probably not. But kind of cool if it did. <laughs> we can see what happens. I'm sure you can find plenty of other things in the Flash Forward catalog to fuel your nightmares. That's all for this episode. Flash Forward is produced by me, Rose Eveleth. The intro music is by Asura, and the outro music is by Hussalonia. The episode art is by Matt Lubchansky. Special thanks this episode to the Women's Audio Mission, Miriam Caduce, Stephanie Lopez, The Potluck Podcast Studio, The Potluck Podcast Collective, and Quincy Surasmith. The narrator for The Snow Globe is played by Brent Rose. Lenny Haywood is played by Evan Johnson. Farah Mustarian is played by Zara Norbaksh, who hosts a podcast called Good Muslim, Bad Muslim. Definitely go listen to that. John Jacob Siwa is played by Joseph Jones. Juana Aguilar is played by Tamara Krinsky, who is the host of Tomorrow's World Today, now streaming on Amazon. Ramona is played by Andrea Salenzi, who hosts a podcast called The Longest Shortest Time, a show about parenting that even I, a non-parent, really enjoy. 
Roberta is played by Avery Truffleman, a producer at 99% Invisible and the host of a miniseries called Articles of Interest, which is all about what we wear and how it came to be. You can find more about all of these actors and our guests on this episode in the show notes. And you can find further reading materials at flashforwardpod.com. If you want to chat with other listeners about this episode or about the future in general, join the Flash Forward Facebook group. You can find it by searching for Flash Forward Podcast on Facebook. It's a closed group, but I will add you as long as you are not, very obviously, a bot. If you want to suggest a future we should take on, send us a note on Twitter, Facebook, or by email at info at flashforwardpod.com. I love hearing your ideas. The next little mini season is around the theme of bodies. So if you have body themed future ideas that you want to hear about, send me an email. And if you think you've spotted one of the little references that I've hidden in this episode, email me there too. If you're right, I will send you something cool. A hint on the references, because lots of people have asked me. Um, one, number one, listen to the advertisements. I sometimes put them in there. And number two, Pay attention to the names of the various characters in the different sketches at the top. Those are often where the references are found. Okay, I've said too much already. If you want to support the show, there are a few ways you can do that too. Head to flashforwardpod.com support for more about how to give. But if giving money is not in the cards for you, you can head to Apple Podcasts and leave a nice review or just tell your friends about the show. That really, really helps. And now for the surprise. I was recently a guest on the very funny, very charming, very impressive podcast, Song Salad. On every episode of Song Salad, the two hosts, Shannon and Scott, write an entire song about something in just 45 minutes, which is incredible. At the beginning of every episode, they spin the salad spinner of fate, which determines the genre of the song that they have to make. And then they click random article on Wikipedia to get a topic. But this week, they let me pick the topic, and I picked geoengineering, obviously, since that's what last week's episode of Flash Forward was about, and I've been thinking about it nonstop. And oh my god, people, the song that they made has been stuck in my head since they played it for me. You can listen to the whole episode of Song Salad wherever you get your podcasts, and you absolutely should. The episode includes an interview with me, but more importantly, a funny behind-the-scenes look at what goes into writing these songs. And Shannon and Scott very graciously said it was okay for me to play the end result for you all on Flash Forward. So without any further ado, here is a song about solar radiation management in the style of Electrofunk by Shannon and Scott. Okay, that's all for this future. Come back next time and we'll travel to a new one.